Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Bowls with the Bard. My name is Cakes, I am your host, and today for our February episode, we are going to do something a little bit different. If you don't already know, I am on TikTok at 10K Shakespeare, and at the beginning of this year, I challenged myself to go around the canon in 80 days. I will let Michaela of January 1st of 2023 explain to you exactly what that means, but for now, I will let you know what today's episode, or I guess I should say episodes, will entail. So far in 2023, I have made a video about Shakespeare every single day. So episode one of Around the Canon in 80 Days will give you the first 20 episodes that I have filmed. Episode two will give you the second 20 days worth of content. And then after I finish going Around the Canon on March 21st, I will drop episodes three and four, which will contain two more chunks of 20 videos. Every Around the Canon in 80 Days episode will be around an hour long, and I am so excited to share this journey with you. I have learned so much, and I hope you enjoy taking it with me. But before we start our journey Around the Canon in 80 Days, of course, let me finish this bowl. We've got to get a little high. <laughs> around the canon in 80 days. What does that mean? Between now and March 21st, I am reading all of Shakespeare's works, plays, sonnets, poems, all of it. Every day after I finish my reading, I'm gonna make a small video with thoughts about what I read that day. Today, I started reading The Two Gentlemen of Verona and got through act three, scene one. And boy, do I have thoughts. I haven't read this play in five or six years, and in the gap since reading it, I think I convinced myself that Proteus becomes like gradually worse throughout the play. But no, he just sucks. I think I was convinced he and Julia had a longer history together, but the first couple of scenes make it pretty clear that like Julia is being courted by multiple men and they don't really know each other that well. Which I think really hammers down the point that Proteus makes a lot of snap decisions and that he's generally just not very good at thinking for himself. But I think my memories of just how bad a character Proteus is by the end of this play have cast a shadow and allowed me to forget that some of these other characters just make real questionable decisions. Like in the scene where the Duke banishes Valentine, Valentine just walks right into his trap. I spent the whole scene like, if you're trying to marry this dude's daughter behind his back, why are you outlining for him your entire plan? It shouldn't be that easy for the Duke. And when Julia decides to follow Proteus, Lucetta spends the entire scene being like, good God, girl, get a grip, do not do any of this. Julia has a voice of reason right there and she chooses to follow the toxic man anyway. But honestly, the most frustrating part of rereading this play is all of the racist and anti-Semitic language. Just so many instances of comparing blackness to something bad. And in turn, so many instances of comparing fairness or white 
whiteness to beauty or goodness. And unfortunately, just so much blatantly anti-Semitic language. Overall, I was expecting the problematic gut punch I'm gonna get tomorrow when I'm reading the ending, but I didn't remember how problematic this play is all the way through, and I didn't remember how flimsy some of the plot points are, or convenient at best. See y'all for more Around the Canon tomorrow. And evidently for day two, I have arranged a problematic play doubleheader. First, I finished reading The Two Gentlemen of Verona. My main takeaway from this read is that unless you are going to direct this with an incredibly specific vision and hack the text to pieces, this play can probably be put to rest. It's just not very good all around, especially by modern standards. Proteus just sucks. I got to the part of the play where he threatens to essay Sylvia. And with that in mind, I think if you were to direct this play, the one kind of useful thing you could explore with it is how men will vouch for men even if they don't really have a good reason to. Yesterday, it really stuck out to me that Proteus is a bad guy from jump, and that Valentine, when asked by the Duke, like, what kind of man is Proteus? He really vouches for him, like over the top, makes him seem like he is a great, great man. And choosing to do that sets Valentine up for his own demise. Noticing that this time around made it slightly less surprising to me that Valentine offers Sylvia up to Proteus after he attempts to SA her, but it's still an incredibly disturbing plot point to put four pages before what's supposed to be a happy ending. It just leaves a terrible taste in my mouth that makes me not want to do the play at all. I will say I think Sylvia is a badass female character, especially for one of Shakespeare's earlier plays, and I wish I could pluck her out of this one and put her somewhere else. I also read the first two scenes of Taming of the Shrew today. Thankfully, that just means the prologue. Which, after reading it for the first time in almost a decade, I have to agree with Liz Bellows from Opsfest. This framing device should be in the play if we're gonna produce it in 2023. Because it puts a heckler on the stage that allows the audience to know how the theater makers feel about what is going on on stage. And it invites the audience to heckle as well, and I think Petruchio should be heckled. Beyond that, I was kind of searching for how the prologue ties into the themes of the actual play, and beyond some loose threads, I couldn't really find a good connecting point. It is a stupid fun way to frame a play though. I'll be back with more Around the Canon tomorrow. Today I read Act 1, Scene 1 through Act 3, Scene 1 of Taming of the Shrew. This play is a doozy, but I made some interesting new observations for myself. We all know Petruchio sucks, but I think it's interesting that in the first couple of scenes before Petruchio and Catherine meet, Grumio quite literally tells us over and over again that Petruchio is not a good guy, that he's violent. He actually quite literally says he thinks that if Petruchio had a wife, he would be violent toward her, and I think it's very interesting that Shakespeare has a character within the play commenting on that. What I wasn't expecting is how little I like Catherine upon rereading this play. 
In her first scene, I found myself asking the classic, like, who comes first, the chicken or the egg? Does she talk to people like this because she always has? Or does she talk to people like this because people have always talked to her and about her this way? But as I read further and further into the play, I became less and less interested in why Catherine behaves this way because she is also actually very physically violent. At the halfway point in this play, all I can really say about Catherine and Petruchio is that beyond the witty banter scene that we all love and is the reason that we still want to do this play, I just think these two characters really need a good therapist. They don't need taming, whatever that means, and they definitely don't need each other. But the highlight of this read for me has been total validation of spending the last year making memes of Bianca the bimbo. If you edit like three lines that say the word modesty out of this play, you can absolutely play it like Bianca has been sleeping with all of her suitors, like Baptista caught her and he has made this rule that she can't get married and has to stay in the house until Catherine gets married to try to have some sort of control over the situation and keep these suitors out of her pants. And then it can be really funny for your audience that they find ways to get into the house anyway. I also think Baptista is fascinating. He's clearly problematic in how he talks about Catherine and in selling Bianca off to the highest bidder. But it's also important to him that Catherine loves her husband and that his daughters be educated, which is not typical for a man of his time. Let me know your thoughts on Taming, and I'll be back with more Around the Canon tomorrow. Today, I read the second half of Taming of the Shrew, and holy shit, I did not remember just how many people end up in disguise in this play. Shakespeare does disguise plots a lot. Normally, I don't mind it, and I really don't mind it that much in this play either, but I do see how it could be a barrier to understanding for some people who may not be as familiar with Shakespeare or his language. Today, I went into my reading asking myself, is there any textual evidence for the idea that Catherine and Petruchio are behaving the way that they're behaving because they have agreed on doing this as some sort of, like, bit? And I just don't think it's there. First and foremost, Petruchio has a soliloquy where he is on stage alone telling just the audience that he plans to treat Kate like a bird, to starve her and to not let her sleep until she is tamed. In my experience with Shakespeare, when a character gives a soliloquy, when they are speaking directly to the audience, it is never a lie. It's actually quite the opposite. It's supposed to be the character expressing their deepest truth. Which leads me to my second point, which is that Catherine never has a moment where she gets to tell the audience or Petruchio that she is in some way in on all of this. So if you're going for that plot point, you either have to give her text that isn't already in the play, twist text in the play to mean something that it really doesn't, or have her silently indicate that to the audience or Petruchio. Because when I read her text in the second half of this play before her turning point, I read a very scared, very powerless woman. And when she does finally turn, it's because somebody else who is witnessing what is happening literally looks at her and is like, dude, just freaking go with it. It's a giving in moment and I don't think it's intended to be empowering in any way. Reading the second half of this play with all of this in mind made me ask the question, if this is a bit, if Petruchio and Kate are just pretending 
To what end? Because Bianca and the Widow, the only other women in this play, seem to be able to think for themselves already, and this only seems to make the men in the play behave more like misogynists. I don't know, maybe I just don't like this play. I'll be back with more Around the Canon and Henry VI Part Two tomorrow. Today I read Act 1, Scene 1 through Act 3, Scene 1 of Henry VI Part 2. And apologies in advance, y'all. This is going to be a wonky video. I have had the travel day from hell. I am recording this intro from the bathroom of the third of four airplanes that I'm going to be on today, two of which broke down on me. Welcome to Vegas, y'all. Full disclosure, I have only ever read this play twice and I have never seen it on stage. So this is a rare moment in which I can only speak to how this play reads and not how it works as a play. Structurally, I understand why people don't love this play. But in a world where we cut the crap out of Shakespeare anyway, I wish more people would take a whack at producing this. Because the royal drama here is juicy and just so much fun. And the characters involved are so well-written, so well-developed, and I want to see them on stage. Y'all know I'm talking about my girl Margaret. She's just such a badass. She's so smart and she grabs at power, at least at the beginning of this play, in a way that is so different from the other ambitious women in Shakespeare's canon. And her relationship with Suffolk is fascinating. I feel like we see very few men supporting women the way that Suffolk supports Margaret at the top of this play. York is a supremely exciting character. I kind of love his strategy of keeping his friends close but his enemies closer. But the character I had forgotten about who surprised me was the Duchess of Gloucester. She's conniving and ambitious and I want to see her witchcraft scene on stage. So far my biggest qualm with this play is I think a typical qualm for Shakespeare's histories, which is like, so many dukes, so many names, how do I keep track? And while I think that's mostly a reading the play problem, I do think that problem can tend to translate to on stage as well. And I think that problem could be easily and excitingly remedied by casting diverse bodies in those roles. Even though I loved reading this play the first time around, for whatever reason I was kind of dreading it for this project, but I'm happy to say that after today I'm really excited to pick it up again tomorrow, and I'm very much hoping that seeing it on stage doesn't totally spoil that for me. I'll be back with more Around the Canon in 80 days tomorrow. Today I finished reading Henry VI Part Two, and holy crap, do I feel like I read two different plays yesterday and today. The first three acts of this play are so legato. Each scene is so long and has so much jam packed into it. And it's also so hyper-focused on like a lot of the plotting and scheming going on in Henry VI's court. But at the end of Act 3, which was in my reading today, Suffolk is murdered, and that seems to be the exploding point for this play. Because all of a sudden in Act 4, we get Jack Cade, and we're at war, and there are 10 scenes, and they're all pretty short. Which is really interesting, and I guess breaks up the play a little bit, but it's also kind of jarring. I can definitely see how the pacing of this play could dissuade people from wanting to produce or direct it. I'm also a little disappointed with some of the payoff. The beginning of this play gives so much attention to the relationship between Suffolk and Margaret, and then when he dies, we get so little of her reaction to that happening. 
And I know that payoff comes in part three, and I know it's epic, but when I think about this play being produced as a standalone, I think about how disappointed I would be by the lack of resolution there. The highlight of my reading today, though, is just how well Shakespeare characterized Henry VI. Like, he's just such a wimpy boy. He's fainting, and he's running away, and then he's so paralyzed he can't even run away. And he's so obsessed with his religious ideals, particularly the idea that only God can judge people, that he frequently lets people who screw him over get away with little to no consequence, and that ultimately digs him into a deeper hole. At the end of these two days, I enjoyed reading this play just as much as I did the first time, but I can definitely see how it would be incredibly structurally challenging to put on stage. And especially as I closed in on the end of the play, it became clearer and clearer that it's probably necessary to produce this in repertory with part three. And if I remember correctly, part three is not better than this one, so I can see how that would be a problem too. But I'll find out for sure soon because my Around the Canon reading for tomorrow is Henry VI Part 3. See you then! Today I read Acts 1 through 3 of Henry VI Part 3, and I might regret saying this tomorrow after I've finished reading the play, but like, justice for this play! For some reason I remembered it being worse than Part 2, but I think I was wrong. All of the great character work from part two and most of the best characters from that play transfer over into this. We finally get to see Margaret's rage, how she is completely capable of leading an army. And if it isn't number one, her handkerchief moment with York has to be at least top three revenge moments in all of Shakespeare. Henry continues to be a totally incompetent man-child, to the point where you only care about his side winning because you care about Margaret and Clifford. We we get to meet York's sons, which means we get to meet future Richard III. And I've got to say, it's really fun to watch him morph from almost an epic war hero who's fighting alongside his dad to someone who's scheming against his brothers and plotting to have power. That shift happens so much faster than I remembered it. Honestly, my biggest qualm is not being able to tell how much time passed between the last play and this one. And that's mostly just because Margaret and Henry seem to have an adult-ish son who is a major plot point in this play and was not in the last one at all. But the nice part about that is, at least based on reading the first three acts, I think this play can stand on its own, unlike part two, so I don't know how much the passage of time really matters. Also, just like so many monologues, so many great, great monologues. So if you're looking for an obscure Shakespeare piece to work on, try Henry VI Part Three. I'm finishing reading the play tomorrow, so I'll check back in with more Around the Canon then. Today, I read Acts 4 and 5 of Henry VI Part 3. Yesterday, I gave this play some high praise, and I stand by that praise, but having just read particularly Act 4, I want to talk about some of the cons in this play. The characters in this play are supremely fickle. They are changing sides between Henry and Edward over and over again, sometimes with no reason given at all, and when there are reasons given, they're kind of flimsy. For me, 
that meant there were a couple of times when I was reading that I was like, oh wait, shit, this person is on this side now. Even as someone who is hyper familiar with Shakespeare's language, it can get a little confusing. Also, since we currently live in a world where it can feel impossible to change people's minds, even with the best argument, it feels a little ridiculous to have these characters changing allegiances so willy-nilly. And even more ridiculous that there seems to be an important weight placed on physically possessing the crown in order to actually be seen as the legitimate king. Especially in Act 4, keeping track of who is the king now, who is on whose side, who won the last battle, and who has been kidnapped. It's just a lot. I also found Act 4 to just be boring, so I think if you want to direct this play, you have to have a very specific vision for how you want to do Act 4, you have to cut it to pieces, and you have to find ways to make it as exciting as the other acts in this play. And then Act 5 mirrors the structure of Act 4 at the top, but then kind of slides back into the text and the characters having more substance. Overall, I do really like this play a lot more than I thought I would. I think it's one that is worth producing, and one that you could produce as a standalone, unlike the other Henry VI plays. But to do that, I think you need to give it a little bit of a makeover and be very attentive to what you want to say with the play. Tomorrow, I'm swinging back around to Henry VI Part 1, and I will check in with more Around the Canon in 80 days then. Today, I read Acts 1 through 3 of Henry VI Part 1, and I do not like this play. The first time I read the histories, I read them in historical order, and I think that allowed me to give this play a little bit of leniency. This time, I am reading them chronologically in the order that they were written, at least as according to the RSC website, and reading parts two and three before this one really puts a damper on part one. Parts two and three start off with some excellent character development, and some great language that I think helps you to invest in the characters and the plot. So when they sort of fall off at the end and they're not nearly as good as they are at the beginning, it's a little bit easier to push through to the end of the play. But part one gets none of the good stuff the other plays have. It jumps right into internal court conflict and war with France, and you just don't get to know any of the characters which makes it really hard to care about any of the plots that are happening. I'm also not a fan of the Plantagenet v. York, White Rose versus Red Rose plot showing up for the first time in Act 2, Scene 4. It's clear that there's some sort of him versus me, pick your side plot going on, but until the middle of the scene, they don't really fully explain what the conflict is. And even when they do, it's not in totally explicit language. I just think if I wasn't familiar with Shakespeare's language and this plot point popped up out of nowhere, I would be like, what? Who are these people? Why do I care? Like, ah. <laughs> Lastly, and I may eat my words about this after reading Acts 4 and 5, but I remembered Joan being more of a badass. It may just be because I just finished reading parts two and three and Margaret sets a standard that is like impossible to meet. I don't know, I still think Joan is a cool character, but like if I had to choose between women who lead armies in the Henry VI plays, I know where my heart lies. 
I'm hoping acts four and five are going to make that decision a little more difficult for me, but I will check back in with more around the canon in 80 days tomorrow and let you know how that goes. <laughs> Today I read Acts 4 and 5 of Henry VI Part 1, and I still really don't like this play, but I had some interesting thoughts come up. First, after reading Parts 2 and 3, I find Shakespeare's portrayal of Henry VI in this play in comparison to the other plays fascinating. At the beginning of the play, people are calling him the Infant King, and then by the middle he is speaking a lot, so I think I think a significant amount of time passes during this play, but I'm honestly not sure. Let me know if you know. But when he does start speaking, despite being the youngest person in the room, he frequently seems to be the most level-headed. And I think that's largely because he is still listening to Gloucester's advice at this point. The last thing Henry does in this play is go against Gloucester's advice by marrying Margaret instead of the woman that Gloucester picked for him. And then we see in part two, the more that Henry continues to break with Gloucester, the worse his political position becomes. I also think it's interesting that Henry isn't particularly religious in this play. And I wish we got to see more of how Winchester works on him to make him the mega Christian Henry VI we're used to seeing. I think the notable difference between Charles the Dauphin fighting alongside Francis Champion Joan, while Henry literally cannot fight along the English champion Talbot is something I would really want to highlight in production. I think the two scenes where Somerset and York are being super catty and refusing to send troops to Talbot, even though that could literally kill him, and blaming it on each other are both hilarious and ridiculous. I kind of wish we had more scenes like them in this play. And lastly, I totally misremembered how Suffolk and Margaret's relationship starts. I thought Margaret was way more into it, but it's really just Suffolk pursuing her after making her his prisoner. And for me, that makes some of the passion she feels for Suffolk in part two feel a little bit Stockholm syndrome-y. And it also makes the fact that she becomes who she becomes after he dies feel so much more badass. I am officially done with the Henry Sixes and moving on to better plays. I'll be back with some Titus Andronicus thoughts tomorrow. Today I read Acts 1 through 4 of Titus Andronicus. I love this play, and for whatever reason, today it was reminding me of a bunch of other characters in the canon. Like, top of the play Titus reminds me so much of Macbeth. He's this revered warrior, but he's not so good at the political decisions. And he doesn't have a Lady M for guidance. I think Marcus is a good voice of reason for him, but I don't think he's as good at the persuasion element of things. So sometimes Titus doesn't listen to him, and that's almost never a good thing. As Titus slips into insanity, it makes me think of Lear's madness. But Titus's insanity seems to be more dangerous than Lear's. Where Lear's train will sometimes indulge in his madness, Marcus and Lucius seem to understand that they have to burst Titus's bubble or things will get worse for them. And lastly, Aaron reminds me of a slightly less charismatic Iago. Like, as an audience, we love to hate Iago, and I think that has to do with the fact that he's kind of figuring it out with us as he goes. 
Aaron is calculated. He's just flat out telling us he is going to get Lavinia essayed. He is going to trick Titus into chopping off his hand, which I think makes him slightly harder to like until act four. I want to talk a little bit about parenthood in this play, because I think we're supposed to compare the three major parental figures. Titus and Tamara are kind of same thing, different font. They both spend the entire play trying to avenge children that the other either killed or harmed. But in doing so, they enlist their other children and put them in harm's way. Also, at the top of the play, Titus flat out murders one of his sons from a place of pride. And Tamara is willing to have hers and Aaron's baby killed for self-preservation purposes. Despite being a total asshole for the first half of the play, Aaron is the only good parent in Titus Andronicus. When Aaron finds out he has a son and that that son is in danger, he literally kills for him and then he vows to physically remove his child from the potential of this world's violence. Such an interesting dynamic. I wish I could pick Shakespeare's brain about his intentions for Aaron. I ran out of time, but I will wrap up Titus and kick off Richard III tomorrow. Today I read Act 5 of Titus Andronicus and Acts 1 and 2 of Richard III, and since I read those two plays, I want to spend a little time talking about the three major soliloquizing villains in the Shakespeare canon, and then swing around to talk a little bit about this. So we're talking about Richard, Iago, and Aaron, and apologies to Iacomo who could definitely fit in this category, but who I know a little bit less about. Beyond plotting with the audience, I think the baseline similarity these three characters share is that they're all very good at convincing other people to do bad things for them. But looking past that, they're all very different. If we look at motivations, Richard wants to become king and stay king. Iago gives us two kind of flimsy ones, either he loves Desdemona or he wants Othello's position in the military. And for Aaron, I think it's some self-preservation, some love for Tamara, and to paraphrase his own words, because he can. I think public perception is a very interesting way to compare these characters. The women who are around Richard do not trust him at all. The men who are around him trust him way too much. Basically everyone around Aaron seems to know that he's a villain, but for some reason many people trust him anyway. And I challenge you to go count how many times Iago is called either good or honest throughout Othello. Perhaps that is because he is typically the able-bodied white guy in this trio. And it really is amazing how aware Aaron and Richard are that they are treated differently because of their physical appearances. Which leads me to this. I don't know how to reconcile Aaron's last speech. On the one hand, it is the most brave and selfless act Aaron commits the entire play. He knows this will save his son, but it will kill him. But there is no remorse, quite the opposite. He says that he would do it all again and more if he could. Iago gets caught, refuses to confess, and vows himself to silence, which to me shows that he didn't have an end goal, he is resigned to his consequences, but he isn't going to help anybody understand why what happened happened because he doesn't understand himself. And Richard is literally haunted by the people he killed, feels fear for the first time, and goes down with a fight that I think he knows is not ending well for him. I ran out of time again, but I'll be back with more Richard 3 tomorrow. <laughs> 
Today I read Acts 3 through 5 of Richard 3, and I think I discovered why this play is the most commercially successful of all the War of the Roses plays. Where all the Henry Sixes spend at least an act and a half on active battle scenes, this play understands that the juicy stuff is in the courtroom drama scenes. That's what you can sink your teeth into. I really enjoyed Buckingham this read-around. I kept thinking of him as like a hybrid of Lady M and Banquo. He is, within reason, a loyal friend to Richard, almost to a fault, and is very capable of fighting by his side. But he's also ambitious and cunning like Lady M, where Richard's plans might not work, Buckingham's do. And just like when Macbeth loses Lady M, when Richard loses Buckingham, it's basically over for him. And now I want to talk a little bit about the women in this play, because how could I not? I just finished reading Titus, and in it the women are one of two extremes. They're either the innocent flower or the serpent underneath it. But in this play, the women are so complex, they feel so human. In the scene that they're all in, they go from consoling each other, to one woman cursing the rest of the woman, to that same woman teaching the other women how to curse their real oppressor. I don't know, I just feel like there's something beautifully feminist about that. And lastly, keeping in theme with the women, I have a question. Why do we place so much weight and have so much discord surrounding how wild it is that Richard convinces Anne to marry him, but we don't place that same weight on the mirroring scene in which Richard convinces Elizabeth to let him marry her daughter? I'll be honest, I really looked for the moment in Anne's scene where it becomes very clear that she has actually fallen in love with Richard and I couldn't find it. I think in that scene you can play it off as resignation. But unfortunately, later in the play, she does say, Within so small a time, my woman's heart grossly grew captive to his honey words, and it's really hard to cut that contextually. But I think Elizabeth's scene is harder to reconcile. She goes after him so much harder at the top and has so many more reasons by this point to hate him. But when she turns, she says, Shall I be tempted of the devil thus? As though she suddenly sees something she could gain from this. I don't know, let me know your thoughts. <laughs> Today, I read Edward III, which I have never read, and I don't know what I was expecting, but it definitely wasn't what I got. In the first act, we learn that England is going to war with France because Edward is claiming that he is king of the whole ding-dang country. And on top of that, we learn that Scotland is revolting against England. So far for this project, I have read a lot of histories and I have learned about myself that I don't really love the battle plots, they bore me a little bit. So I was bracing myself. What I was not expecting was for the entirety of Act 2 to be about Edward becoming obsessed with a countess. The entire act is kind of hilarious. At one point, Edward enlists one of his men, who seems to be a poet, to write poetry to woo this countess. And the entire time Edward is asking for this, he is speaking about her in the most beautiful poetry. At the end of the scene, the poet goes to read what little he has written and Edward is like, no, oh my god, that's terrible, I'll just do it myself. Which as a reader, you're like, yeah, my dude, I think it was very clear that you could do that from Jump. I can't really blame Edward for being obsessed with the Countess because she is such a cool woman in Shakespeare. 
She very clearly does not reciprocate Edward's feelings, and she is very aware of the consequences that would happen if they acted on Edward's feelings. Especially because he is asking her to be his secret mistress, not even his queen. So she comes to Edward and she's like, hey, I would love to be your mistress, but we are both married, and if we got caught, we would be shamed forever. So if you really want to be with me, I'm going to need you to kill your wife and kill my husband. Otherwise, I need you to stop pursuing me. So if you really want me, here's the knife. If not, please leave me alone. And by the way, if you cannot kill them, but you also can't stop pursuing me, I have this knife right now, so I'm just going to kill myself right now in front of you. She puts him between a rock and a hard place and he's forced to leave her alone, at least as far as I've read. Just such a smart plan and one that is seemingly completely devised by her. I'll be back with more thoughts on Edward III tomorrow. Today I read Act 3, Scene 3, through to the end of Edward III. I had never read this play before and I didn't really have high hopes for it, but it pleasantly surprised me. It's not the best play in the world, but it's definitely entertaining enough. I think this play doesn't get as much love as it could because we aren't fully sure it is Shakespeare's. We're not really sure 100% who the author is. Our best guess is that Shakespeare co-wrote it with Thomas Kidd. But I think if we want non-Shakespeare people to get into the histories, leaving this play in the dust is a mistake. The text in the histories is dense, y'all. I think that's a big reason why a lot of non-Shakespeare people find them to be boring. But Edward III addresses similar themes to some of the other histories, and the text is just so much more simple. Even down to the scansion, it is regular basically the entire play. And especially because, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this, Edward III is the king that comes right before Richard II. I think if you wanted to get somebody into the histories and you were having them do so by reading the plays in historical order, this play is like the perfect icebreaker play for the histories. I'm bummed I hadn't had more experience with Edward III before this, and I'm excited to spend more time with it. But for the purposes of this project, I am on to Comedy of Errors tomorrow, which I am absolutely psyched about. It is in my top 10 Shakespeare plays. So I'll see you for more Around the Canon in 80 days tomorrow. Today I read Act 1 through Act 3, Scene 1 of the Comedy of Errors, and god do I love this play. It just has to be one of the most fun pieces of Shakespeare you can put up on stage. It's so short, but there is so much jam-packed into every second, and it's gotta be the most farcical feeling of all the Shakespeare plays. I think it's so funny that we start the play with the father of the Antiphili kind of giving us all the context we could need for the rest of the play, and in his speech he says that these twins look so much alike that the only way you could tell them apart is by their names, so naturally we gave them the same names. I love looking at the relationships between these two sets of twins. Like, it is very clear that Antipholus of Ephesus is not very nice to his Dromeo, and that on the flip side of things, the Syracusans have a little bit more of a buddy-buddy relationship, and as a result, Dromeo of Ephesus is a little more timid, and Dromeo of Syracuse is very bold. I've only seen one live production of this play, but when I saw it, I loved it so much that I went back and saw it a second time. It was at the Shakespeare Theatre Company, and they cut it down so it was less than 90 minutes. It was one act. 
the director, Alan Paul, just got it stylistically and it was a joy to watch. And I left the theater asking myself why this play isn't done as much as plays like Midsummer or Romeo and Juliet. And then I studied it for two months and I got my answer. The word slave is thrown around in this play a lot, and while that is very easily remedied by replacing it with the word knave, it doesn't really change the fact that that is what the Dromeos are. They are enslaved people and have been since they were born. Having seen this play and thoroughly enjoyed it, I do think it is possible to produce this play without that casting a major shadow over things. But I think producing this play is a tightrope. The Dromeos get beat a lot. If you do not stylize that violence so it is super slapsticky or over the top, the play can become very cringy. At one point in STC's production, they were beating each other with an octopus. That's just so ridiculous and out there that you kind of forget that it's violence and you're able to laugh at it. But I do think you have to be mindful to be successful with this play. I'll be back to finish up Comedy of Errors tomorrow. Today, I read Act 3, Scene 2 through to the end of the Comedy of Errors. I have a lot of experience with this play. I played Dromeo of Syracuse in a Zoom production. I took a two-month class completely devoted to the Comedy of Errors. I've seen one live production twice and have seen multiple filmed productions, which means I didn't have a ton of new thoughts this read around. So I thought today we could do something fun and rank this play's top three biggest dumb dummies and the moments that make them so. Coming in at number three, we have Angelo. Angelo makes Antipolis of Ephesus a real gold chain, and when he goes to deliver it to Antipolis, he accidentally gives it to the Syracusian. And despite Antipolis of Syracuse not really knowing why he is being given this chain, he offers to pay Angelo anyway. And Angelo says no, pay me later. Why? Why would you ever give someone an expensive piece of jewelry and not take the payment for it on the spot? Angelo never gives us an answer to that question, and because he makes this choice, the entire second half of this play is insanity. The number two spot goes to Antipolis of Syracuse. We learn at the top of this play that Antipolis of Syracuse has been on a seven-year journey, the specific purpose of which is to find his twin brother. So tell me why, all the way in Act 4, he has a speech in which he's like, Huh, everyone here seems to know me. This is so weird, it must be some strange dark magic. In Twelfth Night, the first time someone suggests that they saw Viola Cesario doing something that she wasn't doing, her immediate thought is, oh god, I hope that's my brother. Antipolis never has a thought like that. And our biggest dumb dummy is Aegean. Aegean starts this play trying to save his own life by telling the Duke in explicit detail how he lost his twins. But you know what he never says? Their names. He could literally keep himself from being killed and prevent all the events in this play if he just said their names. I'll be back with thoughts on Love's Labor's Lost tomorrow. Today, I read Act 1, Scene 1 through Act 4, Scene 2 of Love's Labor's Lost, and if you have followed me for a while, you know I love this play. It's my favorite filmed production of Shakespeare, and it was my favorite experience being in a Shakespeare show. 
For me, this play is a combination of all the best parts of Much Ado and Midsummer. You've got all the Beatrice and Benedict-like witty banter coming from Rosaline and Barone, and sometimes even the Princess of France. This read-around Costard's letter mix-up was giving me less intentional puck vibes. Just like Midsummer, Love's Labors has a play within a play at the end. And it also gives you three sets of characters with revolving plot lines the way that Midsummer does. But for as much as I love this play, I know a lot of people don't. And the first time I read and saw this play, I really didn't either. So as I read today, I tried to keep that in mind and think about why that might be. And I think a lot of it has to do with just how dense this text is. I think this is a play you can only really appreciate if you spend a lot of time with and really love Shakespeare's texts. Because reading it this time, I didn't really have to look at the footnotes all that much to understand what I was reading. But the first time I read it, I think it took me twice as long as it usually takes for me to read a Shakespeare play because I had to read all the footnotes. And it's especially wordy in that first scene, which I think does an audience a major disservice in terms of understanding the foundations of this play. And don't even get me started on the Nathaniel Holofernes scenes. I like to pretend that those don't even exist. I think the reason I was able to get over the textual hurdles of this play and fall in love with it is because of directors who really value specificity. I think it's very important for what is physically happening on stage to constantly constantly be clarifying the text for the audience. No unnecessary distractions. But it's also really important to understand what moments of this play still read as funny for an audience and to lean heavily into those moments. I'll be back with more Around the Canon tomorrow. Today I read Act 4, Scene 3 through to the end of Love's Labor's Lost and Acts 1 and 2 of Richard II. For this project, I am spending three days on Richard II, so for today I'm just going to talk about Love's Labor's particularly two scenes. First, if you are teaching students to direct Shakespeare, Act 4, Scene 3 of Love's Labor's Lost should be on your list of scenes to assign. It reminds me a lot of the lover's quarrel from Midsummer in that it requires a ton of specificity of movement and a lot of good bits. And then when the insanity is over, it requires this major tonal shift from silliness to romance. And then there's Act 5, Scene 2. Y'all, it's a beast. In the Folger, it is over 30 pages. It takes us from the women finding out the men are going to visit dressed as Russians, to the men arriving dressed as Russians, to the men coming back no longer dressed as Russians, to the Nine Worthies play happening, and finally to finding out that the Princess of France's father has died, and them parting ways. And at the top of all of that, we get this. Honestly, I don't know for sure what the intent of this moment is, but I have two kind of differing ideas. The first is that it is intended to be out of left field because it is foreshadowing. Just like at the end of the play, in the midst of this romantic zaniness, we are being reminded that love can be taken away at any moment, and ouch, that does not feel good. But from the perspective of someone who has been in this play and discussed this moment during rehearsal, I think this is one of those wonderful Shakespeare moments that you can interpret differently from production to production. In our production, Catherine was played as a bit of a ditz, which gave 
gave our Rosaline a reason to not like her that much. And Rosaline is the person who initially brings this up, so this could very well just be a way to poke at Catherine. In a play where characters like Catherine and Mariah can be seen as indistinguishable, I think that's an interesting choice to make, and one that is both justified and exacerbated by the current living situation these characters are in. I'll close today with the last line of the play because its double meaning always makes me emotional. The words of Mercury are harsh after the songs of Apollo. You that way, we this way. Today I read Act 3, Scene 1, through to the end of Richard II, and this play frustrates me. The first time I read this play, I loved it. It's undeniably some of Shakespeare's best language, and it holds some of his most justifiably iconic speeches. But beautiful language and excellent speeches do not necessarily translate to an entertaining play. And the more I see this play on stage, the less I am a fan. So I want to talk a little bit about what can be done to make this play work better in front of an audience. And I am not talking an audience full of Shakespeare lovers. I mean an audience of less than average theater goers who are only coming to a Shakespeare play because there is a celebrity playing Richard. I think it is possible to have those people leave the theater and not hate Shakespeare because of this play, but I think it's going to take work. First, I think this play needs a haircut, and not just a trim, a full-on buzz cut. If you can make it less than two hours, great. If you can do it in one act, even better. Over the last couple of days of reading, I would have several moments where I would start on a long monologue, and by the middle, my brain would be like, huh, did I turn my work computer off? I totally forget. When you're reading, you get the benefit of going back and rereading for context, but if you're seeing something on stage, that's not gonna happen. If you zone out, you miss things. So cut the fluff, all of it, and replace some of it with visual aids. This play is very Greek in that there is a lot of talking about what's happening and not a lot of getting to see it on stage. If you can choreograph interludes that show what was just or is just about to be talked about, or you can put dumb shows on stage while it's being talked about, I think that would be immensely valuable for your audience. And lastly, Bolingbroke and Richard both need to be three-dimensional, totally well-rounded human beings. If your audience hates Richard from Jump and wants Bolingbroke to win the entire play, the incredibly long scenes and speeches featuring Richard are going to feel unbearable. You must find the humanity in both of those characters, so one of the things that captivates your audience is trying to figure out which one of them is better or worse. I'm reading Romeo and Juliet tomorrow, so I'll be back with more Around the Canon in 80 Days then. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Bulls with the Bard on the handles either on your screen or in the description. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps Bulls with the Bard so much. And tune in next week as we talk with Jake Maisel, the artistic director of Baked Shakespeare, about all the stoner Shakespearean fun they are having down in Cape Town, South Africa. Until then, bye all. A thousand thousand sighs to save all, lay me where sad true lover, never find my grave to weep there.